0: You would turn in your Bibles or in the bulletin to 1st John, 1st John 5, and we will, by God's grace, finish 1st John today, 13 through 21. (coughs) Let's go to God one more time in prayer as we approach his word. Our God, you are the God of truth. Indeed, you are the truth. A fellowship with you is fellowship with the truth. We have not found you. We have not sought you like treasure hunters who will scale mountains or dig deep into mountains to find the object of their affection, but you have revealed yourself to us. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, has come and He has made you known to us. He has brought us into fellowship with the truth in life that we might become partakers of truth and life. Keep our path, we ask. Do not let us waver to the right or to the left. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For we are confident you will bring to completion that which you began in us. And may our joy be complete in our fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and with your dear children. In Christ we ask. Amen. stand for the reading of God's holy word. First John, chapter five, verses 13 through 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. This is God's holy word. You may be seated. To what lengths will you go to obtain knowledge and understanding? That's what this book has been about knowledge. John's been confronting the Gnostic teachers who propose one theory of knowledge that is an exhausting treadmill. Job, in chapter 28, verse 9, which, by God's grace, will begin studying Job in January. Job says, man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots um, to find precious gems and metals. But where can wisdom and understanding be found? To what lengths will we go to find knowledge and understanding? The evil one, the serpent, enticed Eve with knowledge. The false teachers in John's own time were enticing the people with a form of knowledge. We are also offered higher forms of knowledge through self-enlightenment and In the garden, the result was the loss of fellowship with God and the loss of true knowledge and understanding and ultimately the loss of access to the tree of life. John has made it plain that true knowledge is ultimately revealed, not found. He said in our passage last week, if we'll listen to the testimony of men, How much more should we listen to the testimony of God? And he says, this is his testimony. This is God's testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is perhaps the highest piece of knowledge that we can attain, that we know that we have eternal life. And that that life comes through faith in the Son of God. And this is, this is what John says here in verse 13. I write these things, he explains why he writes to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this, in this this final passage he turns to reveal in, in what we possess and proclaim, the ways in which the knowledge of eternal life is both expressed and confirmed um, in the present. Eternal life is in Christ and we don't, is, eternal life is just not everlasting life, but it is life in the eternal one. So how is that manifested in our lives is the question we deal with today. And there's four basic ways here that he has, that the knowledge of eternal life that we possess by faith in the Son of God is both co- expressed and confirmed in our lives. The first of those is prayer. So point number one, if you're taking notes, God hears our prayers. In verse 14, and this is the confidence we have toward him, <clears throat> that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Believers know that we come into the presence of God and we come to a personal God with confidence that he hears our prayers. My wife has come to realize uh, that I don't always acknowledge her requests. She may ask me to get a cup of water while I'm up from the couch and I'll just turn around and walk away. and She may assume that I'm just going to do what she said. She's also come to the realization that half the time I'm in outer space and I may not have heard her at all. We don't have to guess with God. God hears our prayers, our requests. And he not only hears our requests, but he receives our requests. He knows our needs and our desires and our needs and desires are in the presence of transcendence. In verse 15, it says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Notice, he, he doesn't say we have the answers. We have the requests that we've asked of him. In other words, we're confident that our, our, our requests are not lost and unseen in some, some file room in the angelic bureau of prayers they arrive before the throne of God. And indeed, they're in the mind and and heart and hands of the Father to do with them as he wills. But John would have us to understand that because we believe in the name of the Son of God, we are already in in the presence of the fellowship of God. So we're not trying to send a telegram from earth through interstellar space to, to heaven. Right, we're in the presence of God and he hears our requests and they're before his throne. That's the best possible place for them to be in the hands of God. As such, John also offers a guide rail. It's, it's not just that, that every prayer that we might throw toward God um, confirms our knowledge of eternal life. Some of our prayers reflect more of a fellowship with Adam than they do with God. They reflect more of a a fellowship with this fallen world than they do with God. And so he says, "If, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Of course, he's omnipotent, he hears everything. But there's a special sense in which he hears and listens to our prayers that are a reflection of the fellowship that we have with him. As the psalmist says in Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If your desires are the Lord, he will give you himself. John now turns this concept of prayer from the horizontal plane uh, or from the vertical plane to the horizontal plane. It's no surprise. as we've gone through first John. Love, fellowship has been both horizontal and vertical. And the same is true with this, this aspect of prayer. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Uh, I'll be honest with you, it hit me this week that this concept is something I have not thought nearly enough about. That, that brotherhood, Christian brotherhood, requires... Restorative intercession. The, the verb here is, is imperatival in sense. He he shall ask God. There's a whole history of intercession in the Bible. Um, Abraham who prayed for Abimelech, Moses who functioned as a type of Christ as a mediator for the people praying to God, um, Job. When Job rebukes Job or God rebukes Job's friends, uh, God says, and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Uh, Another passage, even though not quite about prayer per se, but Galatians six expresses something very similar to what John is saying, um, namely that we are to be involved in the process of restoration Galatians one, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So it is true that genuine believers, uh, born again believers can be caught for a time in grievous, Sin And and such sin, if we're born again, will not sever our fellowship with God, but it will inevitably strain our fellowship with him. I always appreciate the Westminster Confession on this. Chapter 17, (laughs) uh, Section 3. Nevertheless, they, being Christians, may, through the temptations of Satan in the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, And the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue in therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgment on themselves. That's a reality that we as Christians can. Undergo as we go, as we we fall into patterns of grievous sin. And so John is saying, if you see a brother in that circumstance, jump in and pursue and rescue him. Pursue restoration. And the first place you go in the process is directly to God in intercession. You shall pray for him. And God will restore the strained fellowship. He'll heal the breach and restore him to fullness of life. So we may, and not only we may, but I think we must intercede for brothers caught in sin. But John, here he releases us from that duty for those who have uh, removed themselves from the sphere of this privilege. He says, to those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So what what, what is this sin that leads to death? My my short answer is apostasy or unbelief. (coughs) You can't have life if you don't have the Son. That's what verse 12 says of chapter 5. So sin leading to death is one by which a person is dispossessed of the Son. I think a more filled out answer accounts for John's threefold test in this book, threefold assessment of Christian assurance that is love, obedience, and faith. a true believer in the Son of God will exhibit these three pillars of the Christian faith. (coughs) Love, obedience, and faith, or belief in the Son of God. So we can be perhaps the most upright person like Paul, as to the law, blameless. And we can be the most loving person, caring well for the needs of the saints. But if we do not rightly believe in Jesus as the Son of God, we do not have eternal life. Likewise, we, could, we can cognitively understand the doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, we can love the people of God, but if we live a morally reprehensible life that betrays our confession, our disobedience betrays what our true heart is. Likewise, if we can have all the right doc, doctrine and live morally respectable lives, but if we do not love God's people, John says, he's very clear, we do not actually Love God. So, so in one sense, the absence of any of these markers betrays the condition of our heart that demonstrates the absence of the Son of God. We do not have the Son of God. And of course, again, that to reiterate, that's not to say we don't break the law of God in some sense in the, these areas on a regular basis. Uh, That is why he calls us to intercede for those sins that do not lead to death. And that's why he says in verse 17 that all wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. (coughs) By way of example, uh, David, King David, sinned horribly. His his morals were so far skewed with the the issue with Bathsheba and Uriah. And yet he was restored. Uh, Peter, Peter faltered in faith. He denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he was restored. So how do we how do we know? It seems like John assumes we can identify that person is committing a sin, not unto death. And that that is a sin unto death. How do we know? Uh, This is one of the most difficult pastoral and personal questions to answer. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it when uh, people would ask me about it when I worked for Ligonier. I have a lot of thoughts on it. And I, I don't believe there is a hard and fast rule or formula to say that's a sin unto death, and that's not, aside from to say apostasy. Departure from Christ. You don't have Christ. But how to identify that is, is more tricky. I'm happy to talk with you more about it, but I I think Calvin offers uh, the best possible summary of how to uh, approach this. He says, love should dispose us to hope well. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion. We should hope well that they are a regenerate believer. But if the impiety of some appear to us not otherwise than hopeless, as though the Lord pointed it out by the finger, we ought not to contend with the just judgment of God or seek to be more merciful than he is. We should hope well, but at the point when when it seems clear that God has removed his favor from the person, we should not presume to be more merciful than him in his judgment. Notice John doesn't say, don't pray for that. He says, I don't say that you should pray for that. In other words, you must pray for the sin not leading to death, but you don't need to Pursue that with the sin leading to death. So whatever difficult uh, questions this may bring to the fore um, in these verses, we we shouldn't lose track of John's main thought here, which I think his focus is on the power and the privilege of prayer and intercessory prayer as a confirming source of our knowledge of eternal life. In other words, because we abide in Christ, because we believe in the name of the Son of God, we're able to cry out to God and know for sure that he hears us and receives the requests we've made of him. And as we reach out on behalf of our brothers to restore them from sin, um, this act of prayer, this very act, is an experiential expression of the fellowship that we share with God, the fellowship with eternal life that John has spoken about at the beginning of his epistle and throughout. prayer is one of the highest forms of communion with God. And intercession is one of the greatest privileges, whether as the giver or the receiver of prayer that we, we can share with God and with his people. That's a, a very expression of what John says at the beginning of the epistle, where he says, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we can follow in the in, in what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter four that since we have a great high priest, since we, we we're connected with Christ, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So it's, it's very practical. It's a very practical. Uh, expression of the eternal life that we have now. We can pray to God and He'll hear us. The second way, knowledge of eternal life in God is expressed and confirmed. The second point here, that God protects His children. God protects His children. We might say, like, this whole sin-leading-to-death business is, is freaking me out. It's unnerving it and John has made a point of how serious this whole issue is and at the very end of his book he says, Keep yourselves from idols. He's talked throughout about the deception of the Antichrist. He's called us throughout to, to abide, abide, abide. So this is serious and so what confidence do I have that eternal life is for me actually eternal? Well, he launches into really a series of we know statements in verse 18 we know that everyone who has been born of god does not keep on sinning or literally does not sin but the spirit of of the esv here i think is right is that it's saying not that we never sin but we don't fall into apostatizing sin or repetitive uh, sin that is a persistent rebellion that marks out unbelief He says, he who was born of God, that is Jesus, the only begotten son of God, protects him and the evil one does not touch him. It's not as though uh, we're never assailed by the evil one, that he doesn't touch us in any sense. We feel the assaults of the devil. He would. He would poach us. He would. Grab us by the ankles and drag us out of the kingdom of dark light into the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus says as much in, in language which John echoes in this epistle um, in Matthew 24:24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. This would be Satan's desire. He, he attacks and probes us and tries to, to grab hold of us. But as we see with Job, soon in about a a month, God does allow the evil one a degree of access to us. And when Satan asked permission of Jesus to sift Peter like wheat, uh, Jesus didn't say, no, I said, no, (laughs) Jesus said, I prayed for you. The idea I, instead, I think it is, as Calvin put it, that the children of God ward off the strokes of Satan by the shield of faith so that they do not penetrate to the heart Hence, spiritual life is never extinguished in them. So none of the flaming darts of the evil one will ever strike the, the vitals of our faith. We have that promise. Jesus makes the same promise in John 10, 28 to 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So on the heels of this difficult topic about prayer and, and this business of the sin that leads to death is this great assurance that we will be protected from the evil one and that no one who is born of God, no one who is born again will be touched by the evil one so eternal life truly is eternal it begins now and it will be preserved so we can look to our own faith and the preservation of our faith as an expression and a confirmation of the presence of eternal life even now there's some significant overlap between this point and the, the next one here. But not only does God protect his children, but the third way that knowledge of eternal life finds expression and confirmation is in our consecration or sanctification. And that's the third point, is that God consecrates his children. He says in 19, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's a a clear divide here. The children of God are distinguished from the devil's world. The world and its sin are the, the devil's domain of darkness. The Bible says he's the prince of the power of the air. It says that he is the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. It says that he is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And and three times in John's gospel, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. So the the whole world is under the sway of the evil one is languishing under his rulership. But we there's this contrast here. We are from God. We have been Set apart, consecrated by God. As Israel, in Canaan, as children of the father in the midst of the devil's family, we have been pulled apart and set, set apart by God. <coughs> uh, speaking of intercession, if you want to turn here, uh, Jesus himself intercedes on our behalf in John 17 I think this is really relevant to this idea of consecration from the world. John seventeen nine through 21. <coughs> Jesus, Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. There's that idea again of preservation. Which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. We, we know, this is one of, we know we are from God. Because we've been born again and we are not of the world. Our consecration from the world confirms our stake in eternal life. Another writing of John, Revelation 21, 8 through 6. Highlights this quite clearly. He says, And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, we had this language in John, First John. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the victorious one. To the one who conquers... I will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son but as for the cowardly the faithless the detestable as for murderers the sexually immoral sorcerers idolaters and all liars their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death this goes back to this idea of paternity that we see in first John we're sons of the father or we are of the devil And one leads to life, everlasting, eternal life, and the other to death. The fourth way, now, that knowledge of eternal life is expressed and confirmed, is that God has revealed himself to us. He's made himself known. God has revealed himself to us. Again, I've tried to reiterate this over and over again through First John. Eternal life is personal. That is to say, I think we think sometimes of eternal life as just, I have a mansion built for me in glory. It's, it's future, it's this place that I go and I live forever. But for John, both at the beginning and the end, his book is bookended by this concept of personal eternal life. That instead, Jesus is eternal life. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Jesus was with the Father. He is the eternal life. And he's been manifest, made manifest to us. And he ends now on the same note. Jesus Christ is God and he is eternal life in himself, in his person. Uh, Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life is personal. It is Jesus. I listened to an interview this week. Uh, which one person was was somebody I would describe as an intelligent, unbeliever, sympathetic to Christianity. And he was interviewing a Christian. And as this, the, the interviewer uh, would present his thoughts about God, he would expound articulately in a rational way places he had arrived, essentially through philosophy and, and rationality. And he was mostly right. And and over and over again, the the Christian beautifully and faithfully kept putting the emphasis back on the personality of the Christian faith. The person of Jesus who came in time, lived, died and was resurrected for us and to reveal God to us in time and history as a person to make salvation known. So as far as we can get, I think using our minds, uh, we cannot reason our way to God. Think of Aristotle, who got as far as the unmo- unmoved mover. Right? It's close, but it's not close enough. And neither can we earn our way to God through merit. We we cannot come to God by any other means than through a person. And he's a person. Uh, who's not merely an idea, but he's a person who has arrived in history. Whom God himself attested to be his son. In In history, as we saw last week, through the water and the blood. We can get glimpses of the truth, like blind men fumbling in the dark, but we'll never have the truth apart from him who is the truth. He has come and he has given us understanding. Paul says in Second Corinthians 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's given us the light. And the amazing thing is that, that we're not just spectators of the light, of the glory of life. We're spectators of a, a beautiful sunset. We don't just applaud its beauty from the distance. But we're partakers of it. John says here, we know him who is true and we are in him who is true. We abide in him, to use his language. So we know that we have eternal life because we commune with him who is eternal life itself. Therefore, he says, and one of the stranger, I'd say the second strangest ending to a book that we've, we, we, we had Jonah before, which ends, and also much cattle. Uh, that was stranger. But this is, it seems almost out of place. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But it's not out of place at all when he, we realize he's talking about the true God, the God who is true. And that everything is worshiped. and To depart from him in any way, Is idolatry. Little children, keep yourselves from idol. I think of John's closing exhortation very similarly to what Athanasius does at the end of his his creed we just read. And this is the Catholic faith. Take it or leave it, but with it comes eternal life. Leave it, comes death. So if you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. John who writes these things that we who believe in the name of the son of God might know that we have eternal life. Praise God. Amen.